Well, we can turn back to the passage you read there. You can reread it, Luke 18, uh, verses 1 to 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in the city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not bear me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he'll give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And sometimes... Chapter divisions are a bit unfortunate. And I think there's an unfortunate one here. I mean, for example, in verse 1 of chapter 18, who are the they? And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. I mean, who are the they? And in order to find that one out, you have to go back to verse 22 of the previous chapter. And we find in verse 22 of the previous chapter that the they are the disciples. This particular parable, verses 1 to 7, is addressed to the disciples but it's also addressed to them in the context of what Jesus said in the previous verses. It's not as if this parable just comes out of the blue, but it's actually connected to what he has said in the previous passage. And what is he talking about in the previous passage? Well, basically what he's speaking about is life before the second coming. And uh, he says one or two things about the second coming, and one or two things about life before the second coming. And basically he says that um, the second coming is going to be sudden. That no one actually knows when it's going to happen. He just says that well, if, when it does appear, everybody will know it is for us, the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. That's in verse 24. So it's going to be a very sudden event. I mean, there's actually no point in looking for the signs of the times. None whatsoever. Because there actually are no signs of the times. It's just that one day 
he's going to come. It may happen tomorrow. It may not happen for a thousand years. We have no idea. And just because life is getting worse from certain angles in Britain doesn't bring the second coming any closer. Because in other parts of the world, the cause of Christ is increasing. And they might be thinking they're in a, living in a wonderful time. So, Jesus just tells them, one day his second coming will happen. And he also points out that until then, life will be going on as normal. There'll be nothing particularly unusual. He just says, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be a day of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And if I understand that verse correctly, it means that some people got married the day the rain came. But life just went on as normal, with nothing unchanging, really. And he also points out that it would be like what it was like in Sodom in the days of Lot. They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. Life is just going to go on as normal, with a few inventions here and there to help them do their regular activities like buying and selling and planting and building and so on. In addition to the second coming being sudden and life going on as normal, he tells them they shouldn't be looking for a day that's not going to come. He says there in verse 22, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. I mean, the days of the Son of Man. Well, that's Jesus going to do something marvelous. A day when it will be clear that he is the one that's doing all that's taking place. And he says, the days are coming when you, as the disciples, will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. What does he say about that? He says, you won't see it. You're not going to get to see it, even though you want to see it. And he then points out to them what the next day of the Son of Man is that they're going to see. The next day when Jesus will reveal his incredible power and glory and splendor is the second coming. There's no days of the Son of Man before then. He says that himself quite clearly here. The Son of Man in his day will be the day of the second coming. And in order to um, give them assurance that he knows what he's talking about, he decides to give them some supernatural information. He points out, regarding himself, 
There in verse 25, he's going to suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. This is Jesus looking ahead to the short-term future, as it were, and telling the disciples who were anticipating great things that, well, as far as he is concerned, he's going to suffer many things and be rejected. I mean, how does he know that? But not only does he speak about himself, but he gives details about what life was like in Noah's time. We kind of mentioned that already, but he points out that they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage. I mean, how does he know that? And not only does he talk about Noah's time, but he's even more precise about Sodom. He says that in Sodom, at the time of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. What kind of person knows what the local policies were in Sodom 2,000 years or so before he, was, he lived on earth? What kind of individual knows that they actually had building projects in Sodom? at the time that Lot was there. The only kind of person that would know that, of course, is divine. And he points out, with regard to both the people living in Noah's time and the people living in Lot's time, that they were punished. And part of the punishment that they involved, that they were going to experience, or they did experience, was separation. And the separation was between business partner, partners, two men working in the field, separation within families, husband and wife, and of course he gives an example of that, doesn't he? Lot's wife. I don't know what you would think after hearing all that. But would you want to pray? I mean, that is the context, isn't it? It's after telling them all this, that Jesus told them this parable. After telling them the second coming will happen suddenly, after telling them that until then life will just go on as normal and there'll just be no difference really, and after telling them that when he does come, there's going to be real separation. Would you want to pray after hearing all that? Or what kind of prayer flows from all that? In the chapter, 
What encouragement is there to pray? Jesus did not say to them, you're going to see great days of the Son of Man, therefore pray for them. He actually said to them, you're not going to see one. The next day after, the next time that people are going to see the glory of Christ is his second coming. So in the mundaneness, this living in a society where people just carry on with their lives and pay no attention to the message of Noah or to the message of Lot, and pay no attention to the message of the church, how do we pray? Because we have to pray. And because that is the case, he told them this parable. A parable about persisting in prayer. Just a couple of things about the parable. And then I'm going to mention some lessons from the parable. The judge is not a picture of God. We know that, don't we? This unjust judge is the opposite of God. So he's not a picture of God. But even an unjust judge gives in to persistence. And the implication is not that God gives in to persistence, but that we are to be persistent. While the judge does not depict God, the widow does describe the church. Because Jesus says that. She says, he says that she's like the elect. The elect who cry to God day and night. And then, what do they pray for? They pray for justice. We might find that an unusual request. But if you were in Saudi Arabia, you might not. We pray for justice to be done. When is justice going to be done? It's going to take place in the day of the Son of Man. When before him will be gathered all nations. Now, what about this day? What does Jesus say about it? It's a rather strange verse there 
At least it sounds a bit strange in verse 8. When he comes on this great day, will he find faith on the earth? He's going to be looking for something. That's what the word find indicates, isn't it? He's going to search for it. He's coming as a judge. And he's going to search for the evidence of faith. But where will he search? That's some things about the parable. <clears throat> then just some important lessons. You may be um, disturbed to know I've got ten. But they won't take very long. What's the first lesson from this parable? Or from the context around it? And the first one is don't engage in spiritual escapism. Jesus mentions the escapism in verse 22. Wanting to see a day of the Son of Man. Wanting to see a time of global power. A day of incredible display of the Savior's abilities. Life is going to be so hard. It's going to be a struggle to keep going. People are liable to faint and not pray. And when that kind of situation comes, escapism looms. Imagination. What would it be like if God did this? Or if God did that? But there's no indication in the Bible that he will do it. It's only arising from within ourselves. Something that we want to see. But not something that he said we will see. And instead of praying, we start dreaming. And in the process, we don't persist in prayer. That's what he's saying, isn't it? He's telling them, between now and my second coming, there will be lots of reasons why people will be tempted not to pray. But they have to persist in prayer. Watch out for spiritual escapism.
second lesson. There's no such thing as an ideal time to pray. What's the only time to pray that you and I have? At any time in our lives, what's the only time to pray? The only time to pray is now. Isn't it? It is that dangerous or not that we, when we find it difficult to pray in the present, that we might think there may be an easier time to pray some other time. And we might think of days in the past when the church flourished or seemed to flourish. And we imagine it was easier to pray in that kind of environment. But why was it easier to pray? Was it the external circumstances that made it easier? Or was it the internal attitudes that made it easier? According to what's been said in chapter 17, it's only the internal attitudes that make it easier to pray. External circumstances, they're just basically going to be the same. People will be eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, planting and building. There's no such thing as an ideal time to pray apart from now. I don't know if you're like me. Say to myself, I'll pray about that next week. Or tomorrow. What happens when tomorrow comes? Is it any easier to pray then than to pray now? There's no ideal time to pray. The only time to pray is now. How do we persist in prayer? If I don't pray now, I'm not persisting. So we're not to engage in spiritual escapism, and we're not to imagine that there's some kind of ideal time to pray. And when we do pray, according to this parable, we're to remember our poverty. And why did Jesus choose a poor widow to be the illustration? And we must assume that he chose the illustration because it's an accurate illustration. Of course, our poverty is not our material poverty. He's talking about our spiritual poverty. 
What do we have in ourselves at any given time? Even if we happen to be the most advanced Christian in the world, how rich are we? Oh, we're rich in the sense that we've got all spiritual blessings. But how rich are we in ourselves? Well, Jesus did say, didn't he? Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's one of the secrets of persistence in prayer. What I think of myself. If I'm like the church in Laodicea, where I conclude that I have need of nothing, then I won't pray. That's an essential quality for qualification, sorry, for persisting in prayer, that we're continually aware that we're spiritually poor. That as Jesus said, Without him, we can do nothing. It doesn't matter what the, the culture is like. It doesn't matter what the society is like. It doesn't matter if you happen to be in the middle of a revival or the exact opposite. Without me, you can do nothing. So we're to watch out for spiritual escapism. And we've got to realize there's no ideal, easy time to pray. And when we do pray, remember our poverty. And when we do pray, tell God our circumstances. Is that not what the widow did? She just went to the judge and said things the way they, exactly they were. Spelt it out. And we have to do the same, don't we? What are our circumstances? We're declining our Christian influence. Our society is running away from its past and running away as fast as it can. We tell God exactly who we are. What kind of Christian am I? We may wish to occasionally say what kind of Christian somebody else is, but normally in prayers, what kind of Christian am I? Just tell him our circumstances. That's what this widow did to the unjust judge. Prayer has to be real. It really has to be real. What are our circumstances? No attempt to hide them or to somehow make them smaller than they are, or more dif less difficult than they are. We have our circumstances 
It's in our circumstances that we pray. And if we don't realize our circumstances, we won't persist. And also, according to this parable, when we pray, we're to remember our identity. I mean, who are we as we pray? Well, Jesus tells us that in the parable, we're the elect. God's special people. The ones that he's highly favored. And here we are, struggling through a world that's got no interest in what we have to say. Of course, our future's great. But it's not going to happen until the day of the Son of Man. Until then, we just as remember, we've been chosen for glory that's not here yet. And in the current situation, which is a kind of a contradiction, because the king reigns, but his kingdom's not yet here in its fullness. We're living in the days when it's, um, the kingdom's got all kinds of things wrong with it. And it's only when we remember our identity that we pray. God has chosen us, but for Christians, for glory. He's also chosen us but until then, we pray. At least that's what this parable says. Of course, this parable also tells us, and this is number six, that our times when prayer is more urgent than at other times, And in the parable, what's the more urgent times of prayer? Well, the more urgent times are each time the unjust judge said no. Prayer is more necessary today, put it this way. And it was in the middle of the 1859 revival, isn't it? Prayer was necessary in the middle of that revival. I just mentioned it because it's the last one we had. Coming up for 200 years almost. Prayer was needed then. And people did pray. And we can read in history books about the outcome. But here we are. We're not in the middle of a revival. We're in the middle of the opposite. 
and if prayer was needed when things were most prosperous, how much more is persistent prayer needed now? But isn't it true that the lack of interest of society deadens our prayers? What's the point? Nothing's going to happen. Nothing has happened. Prayed for it for years and no sign of it yet. But sometimes persistent prayer is more necessary. This woman pestered the judge. Don't know if you think pestering is a good description of prayer. I don't know if it's a good description, but it is a good picture. And God wants to be experience this persistent prayer. How about his words in Isaiah chapter 62 and verses 6 to 7? You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. And what a way to speak about treating God. If it wasn't his word, we wouldn't even dare say it. But there it is in Isaiah 62, verses 6 and 7. Give him no rest. Sounds a bit like pestering, doesn't it? Imagine saying that to the Most High. Give him no rest. And of course, rather oddly, that's actually his command. Give me no rest until I make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. So, he hasn't done that yet. So what are we going to do about it? Give him no rest. Or how about this verse from Isaiah 64, where Isaiah laments, there is no one who calls upon your name what does he mean by that? Because there were plenty of people praying. There is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you. Calling upon his name 
means taking hold of him. I don't know what comes into your mind with that picture. Taking hold of God. God is, according to Isaiah there in chapter 64, you have hidden your face from us. So they're being asked to take hold of a God who has hidden their face, his face from them. Not that they have hidden their face from God, which they may have done. But since God is hiding his face from them, they have to take hold of him. The God who seems to be against them. Take hold of him. It's a bit like Jacob, isn't it? When he wrestled with the angel. He took a hold of the angel. And said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I mean, that's a good picture of persistent prayer, isn't it? I'm not letting you go. Who are you speaking to, Jacob? He's speaking to the God who has said to him, let me go. But he said, I'll not let you go. And then there's these words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Which, maybe pestering is not the right word, but it comes kind of into the picture. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Well, actually, that's not what it says. What it says is, Keep on asking, and it will be kept on given to you. Keep on seeking, and you will keep on finding. Keep on knocking, and it will keep on being opened to you. It's a continuous tense, it's not a one-off. And then Jesus says, for everyone who keeps on asking, keeps on receiving. And the one who keeps on seeking, keeps on finding. And the one who keeps on knocking, the door keeps on being opened. But the condition is, Persistence. Keep on doing it. Another lesson about prayer here from this particular occasion is that some prayers will not get answered to the second coming. But we still got to pray about them. When we prayed this morning, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When's that going to be answered? Oh, there may be a little foretaste before it's answered, but when is it actually going to be answered? 
at the end. When Jesus prayed that all his people would be one, when's that going to be answered? He's not praying about denominations getting together. He's praying about all his people from the beginning to the end that they are going to be one. And that's not going to be answered until the second coming. So some prayers are not going to be answered until then. But it doesn't mean we give up praying them. We keep on praying for them. (coughs) After all, the great intercessor. That's what he's praying for. Of course, the Lord knows when to answer our prayer. He may choose to do it speedily, as he mentions here in the parable, or he may not. But he knows the best time to answer them. Quite often, and perhaps you're like this as well, when we pray for something, we've got in mind when the answer should happen. And when it doesn't happen, we stop. And the last lesson from this parable is it's our responsibility to show that our faith is lively. Why? Because the day he returns, Jesus is going to be on a searching mission. When he comes, will he find faith in the earth? This is a description of the judgment seat. He's going to be searching lives. Where in our lives would we expect faith to be seen at its strongest? Surely in our prayers. Because they're the things we're saying to God that we expect him to do. I mean, it's only a picture that Jesus is using here of him searching for the evidences of a living faith. Not only in the people who are alive at the second coming, but of everyone who is standing before him on the day of the Son of Man. This verse, when he comes, will he find faith? It's nothing to do with whether or not there'll be people believing in Jesus when he returns. Of course, they will be. We're told that. They'll even ascend to meet him in the air. But what the verse is asking, when we stand before the judge, and he reviews our lives, 
and he searches for the signs of a living faith. I think he's saying, how was your prayer life? How did you persist? How did you keep on going? In the days where everybody else was marrying and giving in marriage, building and planting, life going on as normal, what was your prayer life like? And that's why we have to persist in prayer. Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you that we can pray. We're sorry when we don't pray. Forgive us when we forget to pray. But help us to see that our prayers today are not just concerned about today. Our prayers, in one sense, are the proof that we're spiritually alive. Lord, help us to persist in prayer, to do as Jesus himself said, to keep on asking, to keep on seeking, and to keep on knocking. And when we do that, he himself says it. We'll keep on receiving. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of prayer. Help all of us to persist in it. For your own name's sake, amen.